Well, good morning. Lovely to be with you again this morning. Lovely day. Great to see so many smiling faces and people coming to worship the Lord together. Real privilege, isn't it? Isn't it a great honour? Be able to lift His name on high and we have no opposition, nobody to get in the road. We just can stand and sing and pray and praise His name and that's just great and remember His name. Well, we've got an interesting passage of Scripture this morning and the passage that has been given to me, I think on purpose, was chapter 21. <laughs> it's an interesting passage of Scripture because uh, I've, I have to be honest, I've probably got 14 or 15 commentaries on this passage and they all disagree with each other. <laughs> like, uh, in fact, I think after I finish this message, you'll probably be hearing from Jack. <laughs> I think he'll have something more to say about it and then others will have others to say about it. But I would like to share with you what the Lord's been laying on my heart and uh, it's a great passage of Scripture. So let's pray together before we start. Lord, we come to you this morning in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Uh, Lord, that's such an honour to be able to come to you and call you our Father. And we know, Lord, it's not something that we deserved. It wasn't something because we were lovely people or because, Lord, that you looked in us and saw in us something that brought merit. Lord, it was all because the Lord Jesus Christ died for us at Calvary. Lord, we know, Lord, we know we didn't deserve that. And Lord, we come to you this morning and we say, thank you, thank you, thank you for saving us. We are so privileged as a people. Lord, it is such an honour to call you Father. And Lord, this morning we pray that through your Spirit, that you would speak to each and every one of us this morning. We pray that you would take this passage of Scripture, Lord, and open it up to our hearts. Father, there's so many applications that can be made here. And Lord, I've struggled all week with this, trying to think through them and, and how they apply to us today. And, but we pray as we take the Word of God and Lord, as we open it up and decipher it together, we pray that you would open up our hearts to be able to hear what you want to say through it. And Lord, that you would change us to become more and more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ, because that's what we want. That's what we're looking for. We're waiting for that day. Lord, we'd love to see it before we pass away, that day when you come and sit on, Lord, to just come and take us to be with yourself. And, and Lord, then ultimately the Lord sitting on the throne of David, ruling the nations. Oh God, what a day that will be. Lord, we want to give you thanks this morning and praise your holy name, and we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, chapter 21, I've called my message this morning, From Pioneer to Prisoner. And chapter 21 of Acts is an incredible passage. It marks the turning point in the ministry of the Apostle Paul from Paul the missionary pioneer to Paul the missionary prisoner. Now, he was still very much a missionary, by the way. His fourth missionary journey was taken all the way to Rome. You could lock him up, but you couldn't shut the man up. He kept preaching everywhere he went. And from chapters 21 right through to chapter eight, chapter 28, Paul is a prisoner of Rome. In chapter 21, we find the final rejection of Christ by the Jews. 
Chapter 21, right through to 28, Luke describes this final divine thunder from heaven as the re-offer of the gospel to the Jewish people was completely rejected. And when we start out in the book of Acts, it's predominantly a Jewish church. By the time we finish the book of Acts, it's predominantly a Gentile church. And the times of refreshing from the Lord that were from the coming from the Lord that were promised in Peter's sermon all the way back in Acts chapter 3. You remember that. If the Jews had just repented, but they rejected their Messiah. And you remember what Peter said there? He said in chapter 3: repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Do you get that? He was saying there, if you repent, it would usher in the millennial kingdom. You've got to repent. They didn't. Now, Paul had just finished his major mission, his third major mission, and his heart was set on Jerusalem. And as he moves towards Jerusalem, he's loaded. He's got a, a group of men, Gentiles, that he's taking with him. They were representatives of the Gentile church and from Gentile congregations. He is taking them with him. And he had a, a group of men. Of course, he had Luke with him. And, and also he had the money bags. He had these bags of money that he had collected from all the churches around. And he was taking it to the poor, impoverished believers in Jerusalem. Now, Luke has already let us in on a secret in chapter 19. You would have noticed that when you studied it, that uh, Paul actually intended to get to, he wanted to get to Jerusalem by the, the Passover. He missed that, of course. And so he had to thought, well, I could get there by Pentecost if possible. But his real plan was he wanted to go on to Rome. He was just going for a stop over there, perhaps to give a report, to give the money and, and, and uh, do whatever. And then he was heading to Rome. But God had told Paul, now his, his vision now in chapter 21 is totally focused on getting to Jerusalem. And God told Paul in a vision, this is what God told him, uh, that trouble was waiting for him. And now, Paul says, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and affliction are waiting me. Every town, everywhere Paul went, the Spirit of God was telling him he is going to be arrested and afflicted if he went to Jerusalem. Paul knew it in his soul. Paul knew it was from God, but he still wanted to go. You have to ask yourself why. I mean, we know that Paul was willing to die for the cause of Christ, but why? Why would any believer want to walk into a possible death trap? Well, there's a number of reasons. And I believe one of them is that Paul had done so much harm in Jerusalem to the church before he was converted. Paul had made so many widows and widowers. And Paul was responsible for so many orphans. Paul was responsible for so many beggars. 
He'd absolutely terrorized them. Now he had a chance to relieve some of that hardship and suffering of the poor saints in Jerusalem with a significant monetary gift collected from the Gentile churches he had planted. And perhaps Paul felt obligated to to go and, and put right some of the things that he had made wrong and that he had caused. And the Holy Spirit honored Paul's desire to bring relief, but left him in no doubt what was waiting for him when he got there. And so we start in chapter 21, verse 1, and we see, first of all, the journey to Jerusalem and the welcome and the warnings. Look at verses 1 through 4. After we tore ourselves away from them, we set sail straight for Koz, and next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara, and finding a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we boarded and set sail. And after we sighted Cyprus, passing it on the south of it, we sailed to Syria and arrived in Tyre. Since the ship was to unload its cargo there, so we sought some disciples and stayed there seven days. Well, that's what Paul did when he came to a port anywhere or anywhere he went. He sought out the, the, the believers. He didn't go sightseeing and he didn't go um, buying gifts and shops or, or just relaxing on the beach. He sought out the believers. Actually, that's what the word there, sought out, means. He made a careful, diligent search. He, he found them. He hunted them down by searching for them. He found Christians. He had fellowship with Christians. And they could share some of the excitement of what God was doing among the Gentiles and encourage that small group of believers. And of course, as was so common in the Middle East, the Middle Eastern hospitality, travelers would always have a place to stay. I think we've lost a lot of that in our Christian community today. I know over in the USA, when Rhonda and I, I was pastoring there for uh, several years in the church. I'm, I'm not sure we even got invited once to a person's home, do you, Rhonda? You just don't. You don't invite people into your home in, in America. In fact, if I was going to preach anywhere and, and, and preaching a, a, around the countryside, generally somebody would be assigned to take Rhonda and I out for lunch. So we'd go out for lunch somewhere, you know, out to a restaurant, and, and it was just kind of small talk and But you know, friends, there's nothing like inviting Christians into your home. You know what it's like. You walk up to the door, you knock on the door, and and it's all kind of stiff and starchy and formal. You usually shake hands, and if you know them well enough, you might give them a little hug, you know, whatever. And then you go off and you walk into the living room, and you sit down in the living room, and you're facing each other, you know, and it's still kind of awkward, you know. And you, well, well, and and how's Aunt Betty? I've heard Aunt Betty's not, how's Aunt Betty? Oh, she died last week. Oh, she died. I'm very sorry, very sorry. Oh, well, well, and and how are you doing? How are your children doing? And it's very stiff and starchy and formal, right? But then when you move from the living room and you finally get them into the kitchen and you've got a bit of food there and a bit of drink and you start eating, then the walls start breaking down and you start talking and getting to know people. That's fellowship. You're talking about the Lord. You're talking about what's going on in your life. You know, We miss that. From one Sunday to the next, we hardly ever have fellowship with other believers. We should, we ought to, we need to foster this, this, Middle, Eastern, uh, this Middle Eastern kind of hospitality idea. Hmm. Well, let's look at verse four. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there seven days and through the Spirit, look at this, verse four, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul 
not to go to Jerusalem. Well, these believers still had there the gift of predictive prophecy. And we're told that it was through the Spirit that they spoke to Paul and said, do not go. Actually, the Greek there means that over and over again, again and again, they're saying, don't go, Paul. Don't go, Paul. Don't go, Paul. They were trying to tell him, don't go to Jerusalem. Well, how are we supposed to interpret that? We got a problem right here. Paul felt constrained by spirit to go to Jerusalem. He felt the spirit of God had in every town warned him that chains and afflictions were awaiting him. And yet here is another group of believers led by the same spirit of God to tell Paul again and again not to go. How are we supposed to interpret that? This is a difficult passage. Why don't you give this one to me? <laughs> so here is my take for what it's worth. And during the break, when you're having a cup of tea, you'll get Jack's take. <laughs> I believe, I believe God was giving Paul an out. That's what I believe. Call Paul at this point could well have decided not to go. He could have sent the monetary gift with the other friends. They could have gone quite happily. And I believe that Paul and his companions had been praying for God's leading, for God's guiding, and for God's approval. You remember that the Lord Jesus, that's what he did. Jesus only ever did what he saw the Father doing, right? That's why Jesus would heal this person and that person would not be healed because the Father had instructed him exactly what he was to do. I believe the same for Paul. He was that type of person. In fact, we find at one point a few chapters back where, where he saw there was a, on a ship, they were, the, the guys on the ship were planning to get him and chuck him overboard so that the sharks would get him. He decided, well, I'm not gonna go on that ship. He sent his friends on over. They went to the other side and he walked up around the top. Took him a couple of weeks. What was he doing in that couple of weeks? Praying, praying, praying. That's what Paul did, you see, seeking the Father's face. He is seeking God's direction. When he got to where he was going, he decided, I gotta get to Jerusalem by, by, by Passover. Now, I know that Paul and his companions were praying. And Paul had a God-given ministry to the apostle as apostle to the Gentiles. And I think that at this point, if Paul had said, you know, the Spirit of God is warning me and I think that, uh, that God is telling me that I shouldn't go there, let's go off down into Africa or let's go over further and go to Spain and then maybe on beyond that. Who knows? I don't think it would have been seen as a sin. Well, we know the outcome Paul was a godly man, sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. I don't think it would be, I don't think we could ever say of Paul that he stubbornly, willfully, defiantly rejected the Spirit's guidance. I don't believe we can say that. So when it was time to leave, Paul was still determined and believed God was still leading him there. The whole Christian community came with their, along with their women and children. They went down to the beach and you can imagine them there and all the sailors watching on as this group of believers come and they, and they kneel down in the sand and they pray for one another and have this little prayer meeting. We don't do that much either, do we? You know, we, we invite people around for dinner. How often do you stop and pray with them? How often do you say, hey, hey folks, we, we've got, we, we need to be praying for each other. We need to be lifting each other up before the throne. How can I pray for you intelligently? Look at verses seven and eight. When they had completed the voyage from Tyre, we reached Ptolemy, so that's a silent P. 
It's hard to get my tongue around that one. And there we were greeted by the brothers and sisters, and we only stayed a day there. The next day we left and came to Caesarea, where we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, and was one of, he was one of the seven and stayed with him. Now, this guy, his name's Philip, and we've met him before, right? Philip the Evangelist. We've met him back in chapter what? Hmm? Where do we meet him? Come on now, Hokanui. <laughs> Where do we meet Philip the Evangelist? We first meet him. Chapter 8. Yeah, actually, we meet him back a bit, couple of chapters earlier in chapter 6, but he's famous for chapter 8. That's right. In chapter 6, you remember that, uh, that Philip, along with Stephen and five others, were chosen by the people to take care of these Hellenistic Jewish women who are being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the way they chose these men, they were chosen as men of good repute. You know what that means? The good repute, they had a good reputation. Actually, that's where we get our word martyr. Our word martyr means that you know, we, we tend to think of a martyr, somebody who has been killed for their faith. But actually, the root, the martyr, the word comes from this. this these men of reputation, they were men who were well spoken of, who preached the gospel everywhere they went. That was one of the marks of these five men. They didn't just preach on a Sunday. or They preached every day. They kept preaching the gospel. That was one of the marks of, of, a, of these men. They were full of the Holy Spirit, it says, and, and uh, of wisdom. So they were quite remarkable men. Well, God had other plans for Philip. And you remember that Philip, due to persecution, the persecution that started at the death of Stephen, started by Paul. Remember that Philip went down to Samaria and he preached the gospel to the Samaritans. The whole city, it seemed, accepted the way of salvation. And then God called him out from that place down to the Gaza Strip and he was sent down to the Gaza Strip to preach to the exchequer of Ethiopia. The man who held the treasury for, for Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. And there he preached the gospel to that man and baptized him when he became a believer. And then the Spirit of God picks Philip up, poop, puts him straight down in, in a place called Azotus. And from Azotus all the way up the coast, Peter preached the gospel. Philip preached the gospel. Friends, you couldn't keep him quiet. It was just contagious. They had, to, they had to share the gospel. In fact, he may have even gone further than Caesarea up to Tyre. And maybe he is the one who planted the church there up in Tyre. That's Philip the evangelist. And now, friends, the evangelist, the, 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 the gift of evangelism comes a third in line, doesn't it? You've got the apostles and the prophets, evangelists. They actually come before the pastors and the teachers. Too bad, Gary. Evangelists come first. <laughs> Paul chose to stay with Philip. Well, at least Philip invited Paul to stay. You can imagine what that meeting must have been like. Paul, the persecutor of the church in Jerusalem, who drove all the believers out, leaving them homes, leaving them homeless, having to, to, to let go of their businesses and just walk away and having to start all over again. Paul, the persecutor, chose to stay with the persecuted. Friends, that's Christian grace right there. <laughs> no grudges. No unforgiveness, no bitterness. No standing in the corner telling wall stories about Paul. 
Instead, it was, welcome, Brother Paul. Welcome to my home. Come in, Brother Paul. Bring your friends with you. Come and stay with us. We'd love to have your company here. That's Christian grace. Now, you can imagine, for Luke, this would have been like the next best thing to go on straight to heaven, being able to stay, because you know what Luke was doing all the way, don't you? The whole time, he's, he's, he's on this, these trips and everywhere he went, he had his little notebook and he had his, his pen or whatever they wrote with and he's taking notes flat out. And so he would have gone to, 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 to Philip and he would have said, Philip, tell us about, tell me what happened in the early days. What happened back there? And he had been, that's how we get the book of Acts. Philip got all, Luke got all the notes. He took it all. That's how we get the, 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 the Luke's gospel. You know, that was originally one volume. It was volume one and two, the two volumes that were together. And they were the, the origins of the, the history of Christian origins, volumes one and two. Now we call them Luke and Acts today. That's what Luke was doing. All this history, man, must have been so rich. Look at verses 10 and 12. After we had been there for several days, a prophet named Agabus came. Now we've met him before back in chapter 11, haven't we? He came down from Judea and he came to us. He took Paul's girdle, his belt. That was just kind of like this a long belt from around his waist. And he took Paul's girdle and he tied his own feet and hands. And he said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns the belt, this belt, and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And when we heard this, both we and the local people pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. Well, here we have another prophecy, another warning from God, giving Paul the last opportunity, I believe, to reconsider. Are you sure, Paul? I mean, are you really sure? Are you ready for what's coming, Paul? And all the believers, along with Luke, pleaded with Paul not to go. Well, Paul's heart was torn in two and, and, and he with us, all this pleading, but still he was determined to go because he was willing to die if he had to for the name of the Lord Jesus. And so they concluded the Lord's will be done. So after many days, Philip, uh, with, with Philip in Caesarea, Paul and his companions made the 105-kilometer journey. took about two days and they went up to Jerusalem and they stayed actually with a... a, a a man named Nason, that's a silent M on the beginning, is a man named Nason. And uh, he was a Hellenistic Jew originally from Cyprus. And he had a home in, um, in Jerusalem. Now, this was a really nice gesture. This was really thoughtful. I mean, the, 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 the Caesarean believers here, some of them came along with them, but they, they, this was just really well thought out because, because most of the Jewish Christians wouldn't have a, 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 a believer who's been with Gentiles or Gentiles staying in their home. Uh, they just wouldn't do that. But here was this man who was willing to open their home to him. And of course, Manson, you know, Manson, you know who he was. He was one of the, the, the charter members of the church. It's very possible this man may have known Jesus in the flesh. We don't know for sure, but he may have. You can imagine Luke, oh my, all this history right here, sitting right next to this guy. God was all over this. This was, this was so of God. That's how we get this book. You know, I was thinking the other day, I know this, sorry, this is a bit off the topic, but you know, we had a lady at our church. Every Sunday, last Sunday of the year, we always have this, they have this, 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 um, 
tradition. And what it is is that's open pulpit, open, open platform, and, and people can come forward and share their stories of God's goodness in their lives during the year. All right? It's really neat. You get some really neat stories and people are just giving praise and glory to God. And there was an old lady that came forward and, and uh, oh man, she must, have been, she must have been well in her late 80s, maybe 90s. Sorry for any of, those, any of you that age. It's a great age. But she, uh, she came forward and, and, and she didn't know how she was going to say what she wanted to say. But what she wanted to talk about was the fact that she grew up in an orphanage. Her parents deserted them. And she had to look after her sister and got covered in it. And she was telling the story. It was the saddest story. And then she told, told about how in the orphanage she found Jesus Christ. And how, and, but, but, but it was time was running on. You know, it was like, uh-oh, people have got to go. And so they had to shut her down. There's a real shame. In other words, isn't it a shame that we don't, we don't respect the stories of old folks? Why don't we ever hear them? Seriously, I mean, there's a way to do it. What if, we, what if we videoed it and then you were able to cut it down to a 10? Because we know that old folks love to talk, right? They just do. And you get them in front of a mic and it can take all service and more, you know? But if you could get them in front of a, a, a camera and, and just video their story and then cut it down to, 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 so we get the story of the person, that's what we've got in this book. That's what Luke was doing. He was sitting with these folks and taking all their stories down. Anyway, that's enough from me. Well, when they reached Jerusalem, verse 17, the brothers and sisters welcomed them warmly. Uh, To be honest with you, folks, I think this is the only highlight in Paul's visit to Jerusalem. Probably this this welcome was probably in Mason's home, and we got to wonder if the warm welcome was because they had bags of money in their hand. We can't be too sure. But you know what? There wasn't even a single word of thanks. I find that fascinating. Not even a single word of thanks for the money or for the generosity of the Gentiles. Well, let's look at this. The church in Jerusalem misunderstands Paul's message. Look at verses 18 through 20. The church in Jerusalem misunderstood Paul's message. On the following day, Paul went with us to James and and all the elders were present. And and when they greeted them, and uh, he told in detail... Now, I want you to notice that. He told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through the ministry, through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. Now, friends, this is a, this is a historic moment for the life of the church in Jerusalem because they came face to face with Gentile believers from all over Asia and Europe. And after the introductions and greetings, Paul told them in detail, it tells us there. That means means actually one by one. That's what it means. Detail means one by one. In other words, Paul went through all the cities he's visited. He went through all the churches he planted through that that God planted through him. He talked about the thousands of Gentiles who are now being saved and, and that had been washed in the blood of the Lamb and baptized by the Holy Spirit into the church of Jesus Christ. He would have talked about being imprisoned. He would have talked about the earthquake. He told them about the prisoners who could have escaped but didn't sat there listening as Paul and and Silas were worshipping God that night. He talked about preaching on Mars Hill and planting the church in Corinth and God appearing to him and telling him, Paul, don't be afraid. Go on preaching because i got many people in this city. He would have told them about the worshippers of Artemis in in Ephesus and and how they became believers. And he would have talked about the magicians who became believers and burned their scrolls. 
And he would have talked about the relentless persecution by the Jews everywhere they went. We find in verse 20, and when they heard it, they glorified God. Well, of course they glorified God. What true believer in Jesus wouldn't be stirred to the core of his soul at the story of God's greatness and and God's revival fires now burning all over the known world? Of course they glorified God, but look what happens next. Verse 20, look at it. See, you can imagine that Paul is, is recounting God's salvation among the Gentiles. And there's a group of Jewish zealots there, the believers, but they're zealous for the law and they're squirming in their seats. Thousands of Gentiles? We'll tell you about thousands, tens of thousands of Jews who have become believers and every one of them is zealous for the law. Look at the text. Notice the word and. Actually, you know, many texts today leave it out because this actually looks like really bad English. It does. When you keep getting these ands popping up, you know, and this and and that, it looks like really bad English, but it's actually put there for a purpose. You see it in the first chapter of Genesis. I think I'm not an English expert, but it's called a figure of speech called the polysnidetan. I think it is polysnidetan. What it is is the repeat of and. And what it's telling you is, Slow down, take notice. Slow down and take notice. And they said to him, and when they had heard it, they glorified God, verse 20. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands, that's actually tens of thousands, that's what the word means. How many tens of thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, they are all zealous for the law. I wonder how Paul felt about that. I wonder what was going through his heart. John Phillips talks about this second and, and. He said it links us to what follows. Their miserable absorption with rites and rituals, forms and ceremonies, their myopic short-sightedness and exclusiveness, we come down to, when we come down to the bottom line, we discover that they're not really interested in world evangelism at all. They turned, once from the, they turned at once from the thrilling story of Paul's missionary adventures and, and successes to a criticism of his neglect, to his neglect of their petty religious rules. What a letdown for Paul. It was like the death toll of any hope he had of mending that fracture, that rift between the Jews and Gentiles. Nothing that seemed could break their insular religious pride and their bigotry so long as the temple stood as symbols of Moses and the law. Paul's hope of seeing the physical return of the Lord Jesus before he died seemed to be fading faster and faster. You look at verses 20 and 21. They're all religious zealots of the law. And look at this. They have been told about you that you teach all Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. That word told there means that they were instructed, they were informed. These Jewish believers in Jerusalem were instructed, were informed by the Judaizers. With all the lies and deceit and the church elders now rehearsed it all 
in Paul's ears. In fact, the word they used for forsake there is the word apostasia. Paul uses that same word in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, where he describes the apostasy of the last days. That's what they were saying. They're almost accusing him of being an apostate. What an insult. I wonder if James may have believed the lie himself. Now, if he knew it was a lie, then the, as a leader of the church of Jerusalem, why didn't he put the record straight? I mean, really, folks, if you know you've got an issue, why don't we talk about the issues? Get it out in the open, deal with it. But he didn't. See, the whole thing was just a pack of lies spread by the Judaizers. Paul never derided Jewish heritage. He, he, he didn't demand that the Jewish believers renounce the law of Moses. He only made it very clear that the law could never function as a means of salvation, never. And it was never, ever used as a condition of Christian fellowship. <laughs> never. Well, that goes right back to Acts chapter 15. You see, the Judaizers right back there, you remember, they were demanding that the Gentile Christians be circumcised and that they become Jews before they could be saved. And then they went on even further and said, not only do they have to be circumcised, but they do have to keep the law of Moses. If they want to be saved. That's what the, 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 the Jerusalem council was all about. And they dealt with it back then. There's evidence that Paul himself kept the law the whole of his life. You remember he had Timothy circumcised, chapter 16. He took a Nazarite vow, chapter 18. In chapter 24, he tells Felix about how, how, the, how he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Why would he come to Jerusalem to worship if he wasn't keeping Jewish law? See, it's evident that the leaders of Jerusalem viewed Paul as a troublemaker. Everywhere he went, he was a troublemaker. Trouble just followed him. Everywhere he went, he stirred up trouble. And so James and the church leaders came up with this plan. They said that Paul needed to publicly demonstrate his reverence for the Jewish law. All he had to do, you see, it's quite simple, because they had, they had four men who were ta had taken a Nazarite vow, and it was a, a sign of piety. It was a sign of, of good, goodwill. If you go and pay for all their expenses... So, so their expenses included that, that they first they had to have a, 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 a seven days of purification because somehow they had defiled themselves. I'm not sure how. Maybe they had touched a dead body or a dead animal or something, but they had to purify themselves and Paul would have to purify himself as well. Then he would have to pay to have their hair cut off, shaved. They take, take all their hair off and shave it all off. That was a cost. Then they would have to offer sacrifices, usually two lambs, a, 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 a ram lamb and a ewe lamb. And then there was also a ram an older ram, and then there was meal offerings. And it, there was about between, there was over a dozen animals that Paul would have to pay to just uh, with this, this plan, this scheme. So he was to pay all their expenses. And then by doing this, Paul would need to be purified himself because Paul had been amongst Gentiles. That would take seven days. And I actually, to be honest with you folks, I have to be honest with you right here, this is my opinion, but I'm absolutely stunned that Paul would even consider this. And Paul himself is absolutely silent on the issue. And while it didn't violate his Christian principles and he was a Jew, he still, it still seemed to be way out of character for him. And I believe 
It was totally unfair. This is just my opinion here. And I, again, this is, you know, I think it was unfair of James to even make a suggestion like this. Was there any thought of those Gentiles who are traveling with Paul? What were they gonna think when they watch Paul purifying himself because he had been near them and touched them? Surely Paul could have addressed the Jewish believers on the coming Sabbath or on the Lord's Day, on the Sunday. He could have gone in and he could have addressed them and he could have put the matter straight. Surely they could have sorted it out without involving the non-Christian, non-believing public. It was, however, completely in keeping with their narrow-minded, legalistic views of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Folks, you see it. You see it coming through all the way through, all the way through. Look, you see it right back in chapter 12. You see it back in chapter 10. You see what happened when God used Peter and took Peter out to the, out to the Caesarea to preach to Cornelius. What happened? The, the, the church in Jerusalem got upset, had to have a meeting about it. How come he was the first one to take the, the gospel to the Gentiles? Peter, how come they didn't lead the mission charge? How come they're sitting back there in their church in the ivory palace? They were, it, had to, it was Antioch. God used the church at Antioch. And, and, and the church in Jerusalem completely missed out. And why is it that money always seemed to flow back into Jerusalem, not out of Jerusalem? How come they weren't sharing money with all these believers around the world? See, there's a pattern that you see right through this pattern of this, this stiff, starchy church. They're never broken with tradition. And it kills, folks, it kills. Because only 10 years from this date, that church was destroyed completely along with the temple and every stone that was, and Jesus predicted that. You know, Jesus predicted. But in 10 years time, it was completely done away with. Church in Antioch absolutely thrived. And when the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul, verse 27, in the temple. And they stirred up the whole crowd and they seized them shouting, fellow Israelites, now these are non-believing Jews, fellow Israelites, this man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, against the law and our place, what's more, he has brought Greeks into the temple. He hadn't done any such thing. What's more, he's brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this place. Well, they had previously seen Trophimus, the, the Ephesian in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was stirred up and the people rushed together and they seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were trying to kill him, word went up to the commander of the regiment of all of Jerusalem uh, that there was, there was chaos in all of Jerusalem. And the commander came down and he saved Paul from death. That's it, friends. That's how Paul's desire to win his fellow Jews for Christ ends right there. The crowds want to lynch him. They want to kill him. The temple gates are slammed shut. Perhaps a picture of the final rejection of the Messiah by the Jews. And you want to know something else? This is something that absolutely staggers me. Not one of them, not one of those Jewish Believers went to visit Paul. Not one of them came to his defence. Not one of them visited him while he was held in custody. Not one. What does that tell you? 
well, 10 years from now, and it's all over. See, I think these Christians here knew how to boot people when they're down. They knew how to attack. But they didn't know how to extend. If only that church, if only that church had organized a mission plan and started thinking beyond the beyond the Jerusalem and beyond their temple and beyond that just immediate surrounds, if only they had become the mission thrust of the world, probably, possibly even, we might even be still talking about them today. Is a church still there? Who knows? But that, friends, is Acts 21. God bless you.